0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to me, with me um, to the book of Ruth. We're going to be here uh, for the next five weeks. And if I had my brother, druthers, we'd be here for maybe the whole year. But we'll just get to enjoy it for the next five weeks. Uh, a rich, rich book of the Bible um, that we're going to get to enjoy together. For those who, who weren't with us last week, We are finishing up the uh, five solas um, as we remember the uh, 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. And last week was uh, Sola Gloria. Uh, For all is the glory of God. God's glory is the most important. And so uh, as we talked, as as Justin uh, gave us the word of God, it was so, uh, so helpful to understand that all of creation Colossians was was made for Christ, made for God, made by him and for him and for his glory. And one interesting thing that came up from the discussion of God's glory is the recognition that God is worthy of all glory and all glory should go to him. And the challenge that our hearts are always wandering And not wanting to give glory to God and what to do when we who say that we love God, our hearts wander. When we don't give glory to God, the thing that we were created to do, what happens? There's a great stir inside of us, a melancholy that comes across us. Because we aren't living in peace and the fullness for which God has created us to be. And so there is real trouble. What does God do with lost souls and wandering hearts? When we don't give glory where glory is due. We we learned last week there's there's judgment for that. That, that when we don't give glory For we have all fallen short of the glory of God, for the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God. What does God do with wandering hearts? What does God do with lost souls? Those who are not giving glory to God. So today uh, we start a study of Ruth. And there are several themes that go out through the the book of Ruth, and so we'll touch on these. We'll keep coming back to them as we see them played out through the book of Ruth. The first theme that we're going to see is a turning to God, or a turning away from God. It is our hearts that are natural to do that, hearts that wander. We're going to learn about chesed. It is a the Hebrew word that's oftentimes going to be translated into English to mean love. But we're going to learn it's a much richer word. In fact, we don't have a very good word for it in English, so it's going to take some splaining. We're going to have to 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 watch it unfold, and then we can go, oh. Like we're going to see it happen, and we'll go, oh, okay, that is chesed. That's what he's talking about. Here's a demonstration of that. It's not something that you and I are necessarily good at. It's not normal for us. And so it's going to stand out as we we see this happen throughout the story of Ruth. And when we do, we're going to point it out and we're going to see how good and loving our God is. And then the last thing we're going to see is the sovereign work of God throughout the book of Ruth. We're going to see how God is working in the big strokes Uh, With little folks, and he's going to bring all of these things together for a much bigger plan that we will get to see on our own. It reminds me of you know downtown. I don't know. I love the way that downtown's shaping up. If you've been down there recently, how these these cool murals that are everywhere. I know not everybody likes them, but there's some amazing. Our little town has like these really cool things in it now. And as you go and you see these murals, if you if you got to watch them making the murals uh it was interesting cuz you drove by and i got to see i got to see both kind of the outline for the big owls you've seen the big owls up there and uh also when they did uh, like like a year ago that is it a tiger what what is that thing there it's uh with the eyes of, what is it it's a, it's some kind of wild cat beast okay and and you just kind of see this this part of it, well, I got to drive by while that guy's doing his bit and he starts just with the, the diamonds in the eyes and he's got, it's spray paint. I mean, he's like, and you're looking and you're going, what in the world? <laughs> this looks like finger painting gone awry, you know, and it's just bits and pieces and splotches and stuff and you're waiting for it to unfold and you're waiting like, what is this? And then you step back, and you see the bigger picture, and you go, oh, that's awesome. That's, that's kind of overwhelming. That's a lot to take in. I couldn't see it one in every little piece, right? But all together, you begin to understand the big story, and it's beauty, it's art. And what God has done throughout all of creation, throughout all of time, has a purpose, it is a, his great design, his redemptive work that started back in creation at the garden and is being unfolded in our lives and will unfold until the end of time. And we get to be a part of that. But it's sometimes hard to see in the big picture, right? We, we are still just seeing blotches here and there. And you and I are the single stroke. So what's fun to do is, is then to go back and look at the picture closely to stand face-to-face, and see the particular strokes that are in there and see how they fit into the bigger picture. Hard to know when you're going stroke by stroke, but when you see the bigger picture and then you zoom in, you go, oh, I see how that makes sense. And each of us are the different strokes kinds of people, right? We're the the one little stroke along the way that's part of this bigger picture in which God is, is using all of us for a redemptive work. And so now we get to look at Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, the characters in the book of Ruth. And we get to see these smaller strokes against this larger canvas of God's redemptive work. We're going to see how God's big picture is made up of these smaller strokes of ordinary folks, kind of like you and me. That's why I love the book of Ruth. Because we can put ourselves in the same sandals as these folks here we can it's easier to understand how they went astray their success and their failures and to see god at work in their lives as we get to pull the story closer and further away so let's start today in ruth chapter one verse one it starts like this in the days When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And believe it or not, that's where we're going to spend a bunch of our time today, just in verse one. You're going, man, we got a lot of verses to get through, brother. Well, we're going to start in verse one today. Because the, the story of Ruth happens in a certain time and when our Our Hebrew Jewish brothers and sisters are looking through the scriptures and they hear these words. It means something more than maybe we think about today. There's a greater picture there that we don't see. And so I want to look at it a little bit today. It says, now, it was in the days when the judges ruled. If you turn one page over, you see the book before this is the book of Judges. It is during this time of Judges. So in order to understand the book of Ruth, you actually have to go look. At the book of Judges, you have to know that this, this story is couched in the midst of the book of Judges. We don't know exactly where in the book of Judges, but for the reader, as we see this, we have this, this whole idea of what the book of Judges is. It, it is a time in which the people are organized and ruled by chieftains, and that there's also these, these guys called judges who come. So you, many of you know we're, we're in Kenya fairly often, and uh, so actually we need to uh, continue to pray for our friends. We have some of our group here that's uh, in Israel right now and we get to see the Sea of Galilee and stuff on Facebook. Awesome, awesome stuff. So continue to pray for our brothers and sisters that are in Israel. But as, I, but as I'm in Kenya, I'm, uh, we have to, there are chiefs, still like real chiefs that are, uh, that are over certain areas. And so in order for us to get land approved, Uh, the, The community says that they are going to give these pastors that are working with some land. But who do we have to go to? We have to go and talk to the chief. And so when we go talk to the chief, it's not just a matter of saying, look, chief, the community has given these guys the land. We just need you to sign a piece of paper. No, no, no. It's much more than that. You have to go to where chief is, which is usually a restaurant, and you have to sit down with chief, and you have to thank chief for hearing your request and you need to buy Chief dinner. And you need to give Chief a little bit of extra money so he can go encourage some of the other leaders of other tribes to, you understand the story. And so Chief is a religious man, a a Christian man. But even when I go and I'm eating at that restaurant, while I was sitting there, I got the bill. The, The waiter brought me a bill and I said, this is not my bill. He said, Oh, no, 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 sir, it's not your bill, it's the chief's bill. Chief's not even eating my table. Why am I paying the chief's bill, right? This is the way of chiefs. The chiefs were in charge. Even goodly chiefs are not so great. This was the time of the judges. There was, as we'll hear regularly through the book of Judges, there was no king. There were chieftains. There were those who are in charge of their tribes and clans. There was no unity among the people. And throughout the book of Judges, you'll continue to see this certain cycle. The children of Israel, it will say regularly, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It is a common mantra throughout the book of Judges. And again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, the children of Israel did the did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we can look at ourselves on a a national stage or the church as a whole and say, you know what, and again, we messed up again and we messed up again and we messed up again. Look how we're going wrong as the church, the the big church, look how we continue to go wrong in this direction, how we are moving towards flattering people, uh, giving them the words that that tickle their ears. That's how the church is going. Ah, we've messed up again we become licentious. We've been antinomian. We've given up the law and following the, the statutes of God again, right? Over and over again. We, the people, sin again and again and again, just like the children of Israel. And they were sinning over and over again. And again they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what happens? God sends a major crisis their way. He may send someone to come and defeat them. He may... He may send a a, a great disaster, a natural disaster, but they feel it. It is a way to wake them up, to recognize that they aren't in control, to recognize that they're gods, that they're worshiping, the things that they are devoted to are weak and impotent. The way they're doing is not the way of God. Here's the book of Judges. And so this major catastrophe comes upon them, and they feel God's judgment, and their response is that they cry out, usually. And God hears their cry, and then God sends a Savior. Now, let's talk about these Saviors in the book of Judges. In the beginning, the, the Saviors are pretty cool, but as you go through the book of Judges, as time's go further, these judges, these great men and women that are sent to save the nation and, and to turn the people back to God and, and to rescue them for, from those who are oppressing them, they get worse and worse as you go along. You, you hear in the early part in, in Judges chapter 6 about a man named Gideon. And, and the people of Israel once again are being oppressed and Gideon is like the weakest man of the weakest tribe, the weakest clan and he's 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 there huddled on the threshing, uh, threshing floor uh, uh, the great, actually, uh, where they did the great vat. And they were, he was, he was shucking wheat there and he was hiding. And the angel of God speaks to him and he has this revelation and understanding that God is going to use him to save the nation. And he gets up and instead of going immediately and doing what God wants him to do, which is to knock down all the idols, he waits until it's night. And everyone's asleep. And then he is out really bold, the dark of night. And he knocks him down and he like runs back. And in the morning people are like, what happened? It's like, I think it was Gideon. Like they go to get Gideon and he's like, my father-in-law. <laughs> father-in-law gets up and says, you're not, you're not going to hurt the boy. <laughs> I mean, these are not like grand, glorious guys. They're only listening to a grand and glorious God. Who does grand and glorious things. And so these saviors come, and there is a peace, and there is relief, and things should go back to normal. God has rescued them, and just like you and me, our response should be worship and continual faithfulness to God, but it doesn't happen because again, they do evil on the side of the Lord. Does it sound familiar? It sounds familiar for all of us, but it sounds familiar to me. Small strokes. Over and over again, right? This cycle of God saving from the current crisis. Then we go back to the way things were. Devotion to all kinds of other things. Second, that we see was the the time of the judges, and there was a famine in the land, and it was in the city of what? What city is it in? Bethlehem. For our Hebrew scholars, you know the word Bethlehem is bethlehem, beth the house of bread. So it's easy to see, right? So there's a famine, that means there's no bread in the house of bread, it's gone where there ought to be God's blessing, where there got to be provision in the the covenant community of Israel, where there should be good things because God is the protector, they're broke and they're broken. There is no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine. God has once again in the time of judges sent something disastrous on the place of Bethlehem. Because in part of his cycle, what he's going to do is he wants them to turn to him. He he doesn't want them to be holden to these other gods. He wants them to worship him because he is due all glory. Amen? He is due the worship. But the people, our hearts are always wandering. And God has gotten their attention in Bethlehem. They are being set up for a return. They're being set up to turn to God. Don't waste a good famine. Don't waste a good famine. Have you been there? Like this week? <laughs> like you look at your life, and you're like, this is not right over here. I, this is, my finances are messed up, my relationships are messed up, my Work is messed up, whatever it might be. And you're, and you're discombobulated. You're, you're moving towards depression and frustration and losing hope. Don't waste a good famine. It's an opportunity for us to say, who is my provider? Do I trust him? Do I believe that he will carry me through? Is he really good? Does he really have a big picture in store? Yes, yes. Yes. We only got through the, half of the first verse. A man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. You know, for us, we read Moab, and we we'll do think, well, that's as good a place as any. Uh, that's not the case. You see, uh, the dad takes mom and the boys, and they say, you know what? There's no bread in the house of bread, so we're going we're gonna to look for greener pastures. Literally, we're going to look for greener pastures. We're going to go to a place where I can take care of my family. It's logical, right? I mean, it would be un- unkind not to provide for your family so uh, they take the next uh, caravan <laughs> to Moab Moab is uh, is the place uh, it has its origin in this in the life of the Hebrew people if you'll remember Abraham and lot um, lot is Abraham's nephew and they are they come to a, 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 cross, uh, a, a, a crossroads in their journey together, where their possessions have gotten so great that they can no longer be together. Uh, and so they, there's a decision to be made which way they're going to go. Uh, are they going to, uh, a, a, and the, the choices are to go actually uh, to, the, uh, to one side, which is dry on the other side of the river, or you can go on the the green side, uh, the place that actually has some cities. Other people have dwelt there. Uh, it is actually close to the Dead Sea. The cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it's hard to make up that decision because, you know, there's downsides and upsides to each one of those. And so Abram, this is an incredible story in of itself, he goes and worships and he comes back and he is the head, the lead, so he could say what he wants to do and Lot's going to have to follow. And he says, okay, Lot, you decide, and I'll go the other way, which sounds like a bad idea to let like Lot make any kind of decisions. But he says, okay, you decide, Lot. You see, because Abram is free to do that because he trusts in a God who's always provided. And so he knows God is going to have him no matter what. So it's, it doesn't matter what Lot does. Lot, of course, chooses the green. He chooses Sodom and Gomorrah, and he goes there. And as you know this story, he becomes a part of the city. And so Abram has to go and rescue him because there is three angels that have come and told him that God is going to destroy the city because there's not a righteous man among them. And remember, Abram barters with God, please save them, please save them. What about my nephew Lot? And and God says, if you can find 10 righteous people in this city, I'll save the uh, the city after a great deal of bargaining. And they go to the city and there's not anybody found. (laughs) So God's going to destroy the city, but he's going to save Lot. So he says, okay, Lot, Come out, and so they have to bring Lot and his family and his, his daughters out, the, the the son-in-laws won't even go with them. They pull him out of the city, and, and as they go, Lot's wife turns around and looks at the city. And the idea is here, she so longed for that place. Her heart was still in San Francisco. I mean, it was still in Lot. I mean, in Sodom. And what happens to her? She becomes salt, right? A pillar of salt. And if you've ever been around the Dead Sea, they're actual pillars of salt. So you look around and you go, I wonder if that's her. And so she becomes like her environment. Her heart was already there, and now she is physically like her her environment. And they leave, and their lot is with his daughters, and there are no prospects, and they're hiding in the countryside and his wife his his daughters do something that is extremely inappropriate and here comes the people of Moab it's like a curse word <laughs> moab but it, it's worse than that because you remember when the children of Israel are going from Egypt and they're going to the promised land, they come in contact with the people of Moab and they say, just give us peace as we go. Just, we don't need anything. Just give us peace as we go. They wouldn't give them water or bread or anything. They wouldn't let them pass. They say, we will kill you if you come past here. Like, you're kind of our people. You should give. No, not Moab. Remember the people of Moab, too, are the ones who hired a prophet to come and curse. The children of Israel. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, like, put a little voodoo on them. Didn't work, but Moab. Now, even a, a more recent history with with them. In, in the time of Ruth, one of the kings came and attacked. So when we when you hear this story, that he thought, well, I'll just hop on over to Moab, surely things will be better there. The people who are hearing this story say, ah, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, that's the worst place you can go. Like, you're a turncoat. You hate us, you hate God. You can't go to Moab. I gotta feed my family. Yeah, but you can't go to Moab. And where does he go? Moab. Interesting, though, it says, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So the idea was, I'll go to Moab, get something to eat. When things are better, I'll come back. So he leaves. Oftentimes we think like a, a change in geography is what we really need to make things better. Man, I sat across from so many folks when I was doing interviews at Faith Mission. In their lives, they were in the middle of the crisis. They were in the middle of their famine. And they would say to me, you know what? I just need to get to Houston. Like, man, there's nothing good coming out of Houston. Sorry. That's why a lot of y'all moved here. I know, so I'm, I'm pretty safe here. They said, no, no, I, I can go to Houston. Things will be better. I, I can get a job. There's more opportunities. So Yeah, okay, so maybe that's true. Actually, I just dropped off Sam in Houston, so maybe I'm in big trouble here. But he just moved there this week. But the problem is in the middle of their crisis, they think the answer is a change in geography. Things will be better on the other side. If I can just get there, Troy knows what I'm talking about. Things will be green on the other side. But what they don't, they don't need a change in geography. They need a change in theology. That's what we need. Because the problem with Houston is you're going to be there. You're not going to escape you. We're the same way, right? We, we will go back to that, those old sins, those old ways, those things we're comfortable with, familiar with, because we feel, we don't feel at peace. Our life is in crisis. At least I know that I, things will be better there, and I'll come back. I'll come back. I'm just going to hang out there, amen, just for a little while. I'll go to Houston for just a little while. I'll be back. I'll be back. Robbie Zachariah, uh, a, a a great evangelist from India says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So instead of waiting out the famine and turning to God, they go to, I can't even say it, and there... They're going to sojourn. It gets worse. I'm going to tell you it's going to keep getting worse. The name of the man was Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were, I like that name, Chilion. What's up? i oh, Chilion. <laughs> they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They were in, went into the country of Moab and remained there. What? Did you hear that? They what? They abided there. His name was Elimelech. Elimelech. Wah, wah, wah. God is King. Hebrew. God is King. So this is what happens. I want you to think about what this really means. That means when Mom and Dad were naming their son, they were saying, "This is our hope for him and for everything." This was this was not uncommon. This time to to name your your children as to your hopes, right? So you see, uh, when uh, when Eli's sons are killed and the mom has a baby and the the the, uh, uh, the the Ark of the Covenant has been lost to the Philistines, she the mom gives birth and she says, "What should, they ask? What should we name this child?" And she says. Name the child Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. And then she dies. But with Elimelech, Elimelech, God is king. In a, remember we talked in Judges, in the time of Judges, when there was no Judges, the people wanted a king. That when, when there was no king, they wanted a king. And so he says, here, Elimelech, maybe in his life, in the life of all of Israel, Elimelech. God is king. Maybe there will be God. Maybe God will be over his people, and we will worship him as the king, and things will be okay again. That was the hope for little Elimelech. God is king. But when it comes to the famine, Elimelech, the one who says, whose name is God is king, doesn't worship God is king. He is an Israelite by name, but not by action. Elimelech. Sounds familiar, (laughs) wandering hearts, right, brothers and sisters? Christian by name, Moab by night. Elimelech, wife's name is Naomi, means pleasant, have the two sons. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah. That's not Oprah, by the way. Probably wouldn't have done better if it was Oprah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It gets worse, doesn't it? Elimelech dies, and not only does Elimelech die, but then he marries two, two of the, the Moabite women. I mean, the, the sons marry Moabite women, and then they die, which leaves Naomi with nothing, right? She has no people. The people she has, she's not going to get income from them. She is only going to pay out, right? She's got to take care of these girls, and she has no way to do it. I mean, there were no Walmart greeter jobs, right? She is stuck out. There's nothing else that she's going to be able to do. There is no hope for her, and not only is there no hope for her, it's no hope for these girls that are with her that she can't care for. She's in a bad, bad place. What is her her opportunities? There are none in Moab, and she's uh, she's left Bethlehem on a bad note. She has no husband. She has nothing. It gets worse. It's amazing how, you know, Elimelech said, I'm just going to go visit. I'm going to sojourn. But what has he done? He has taken his sons there, and they've married into the Moabite families. So now they are Moabitish people. No telling what they're worshiping and doing. It's like they become the scenery, right? And it's time to leave. And they don't leave. Those wandering hearts have found a home in Moab. This is terrible. And I want to say it's terrible for you and me because we have wandering hearts too and we go all kinds of places we're not supposed to to look for that peace again. And we don't find peace in other places other than God. Don't waste a good famine. Romans 2 tells us that God... In his patience and forbearance, he continues to love us so that his love, so that, so that, so that his love will bring about repentance. You know, there should be all kinds of judgment on Naomi, all kinds of judgment on Elimelech and the sons, and even these godless, the, these These two women who worship the gods of Moab, there should be just poured down destruction and death for the wages of sin is death. They should all receive it in full measure. God has forbearance for Naomi and as we will see for Ruth as well. It reminds us of this story, right? In the New Testament, the kind of the New Testament version of Ruth has a parallel in the Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, right? So the prodigal son is sent off. He, he, le- he didn't send off. He, he left his father's home, and as he goes away, he finds famine in this distant place. He spends everything he has on riotous living. He enjoyed the, that kind of Moab. He had a great time until he didn't have a great time anymore. And then nobody supported and cared for him, and he was broke and destitute and had nobody. And then he headed home because he knew he knew his father treated his servants better than he was treated. He's being treated as he was, as he's eating with pigs. He knew at least in my dad's house, the lowest of low do better than that. I'm going to have to go back, which means I'm going to have to swallow my pride, and I'm going to have to return home. To be honest, oftentimes I feel like more like the older brother that sat at home. Maybe you're like that too, who uh, doesn't get to celebrate the party because he's, he hasn't really recognized how good he has in the Father's house. That's partly why these crises are good for us. They kind of wake us up, right? Like, ugh, ugh. I have had it so good. It is so good being with him. It is my pleasure to read to you verse 6. All this heavy weight, crisis and trouble and famine, death, huge loss, desperate situation, Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return. To return. The word "return" here is used about twelve times, one form or the other. I, ho- I hope you hear that. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab. She had heard while in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, meaning in Bethlehem, and given them food. Did you hear it? Listen carefully. Then she arose with the daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And all of this loss, and all this wandering, I want you to hear it. There's a voice. It's a father's voice. And it says, Come home. Can you imagine Ruth broken? And she hears Father's voice. Come home. Some of you, all of us, need to hear that voice today. Come home. Let's pray. but I think it's gonna take a lifetime to see the big picture. (laughs)